Why settle for just living a good life when you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential? Learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Paulvin. Welcome to another fun new episode of the Life Optimized podcast. I'm Dr. Neil Paulvin, where we speak about optimizing your health, life, business, and athletic pursuits. And I'm excited for this really new, fun episode with Dr. Andrew Hill of the Peak Brain Institute, who I've had the pleasure of participating at his institute here in in Manhattan. And I learned a lot. He was like the psychic mind reader, literally and figuratively. So we're going to learn a lot more today about QEEGs and neurofeedback, how you can do it in the office or do it remotely, and how you can use it from everything from health optimization and optimizing performance. So unfortunately, if you're dealing with illnesses like long COVID or other issues as well. So thank you, Dr. Hill, for coming on the podcast with us. Introduce yourself. Thanks, Dr. Paulvin. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I guess I'm just your friendly neighborhood brain training personal trainer who happens to be a neuroscientist, essentially. And then I moved into the entrepreneurial space to share you know, this, this neurofeedback stuff, this brain training stuff. I have sort of a platform, a, a soapbox about not being overwhelmed by your brain, but like digging in and understanding it and, and starting to demystify some of the big features of, you know, stress, attention, sleep, because they're actually things that are physiologically based that we often give sort of big, giant, scary labels to and diagnoses to. But if you understand how they work, you can start taking control of them and be as frustrated as you need. But it's kind of hard to be ashamed when you understand stuff and how it works. So that's, that's the role I, I serve as, as a brain coach for folks and help them build transform, transformation using tools like neurofeedback. Now, you explained to me before we started here that you, instead of going to the research realm, you went into this realm, the entrepreneurial realm. Was there some personal motivation or is it some, something that was missing in the landscape that motivated you to, to go this route? It's probably both. I worked in health and human services for a while before going back to grad school. And I went into a cognitive neuroscience PhD program, which is sort of that mind-brain intersection. Studied a lot of how the human resources, the human features and and brain resources of uh, executive function, sleep, stress, were organized in the brain and how the different systems are interconnected and how they operate, how to test them. And the tool I was using, you know, all, all scientists have tools of analysis and, you know, things that frame the questions they ask. The tools that I was using were EEG or brainwaves because... I went back to grad school to study neurofeedback at, I think I was 35 when I started grad school. So, you know, a little bit, little bit older than the average person starting a PhD in the U.S. The reason I went back to grad school is because of what I was seeing in the clinical environments. For, you know, over a decade, I had worked in clinical, pretty acute environments, inpatient, psychiatric, locked facilities. Uh, I ran group homes for folks with multiple developmental disabilities and without language and often with altered communication and, you know, vision and hearing and, and other, other features too. So really quite profound human sort of edge cases of brains, both developmentally and then in, in acute psychiatric work. I worked in addiction. So I had a huge breadth of human services experiences and places that humans suffer. And I got injured working in a psychiatric hospital from doing too many restraints back to back. And it was an understaffed hospital in, uh, it was before 2000, like in the late 90s or something. And healthcare was falling apart and 
insurance companies were pulling out of big hospital systems. And, and I couldn't go do the work I've been doing the, with the people. So I went into high tech for a while. And then the tech bubble corrected around 2000. And I went back into human services looking for something because I missed working with people. And I found a center that could use all of my experience with developmental stuff, autism, ADHD, et cetera, that did neurofeedback in Providence, Rhode Island. And after working there for several weeks, I started to get pretty excited because I was seeing people make changes. And these were complaints that I had been working with for years. And when things are pretty extreme, you know, someone's got very extreme autism or, you know, PDD-NOS where they're flapping and stimming and screaming and having seizures and there's very little language production and very little language reception, you know, pretty extreme stuff. I was seeing people like this change. And I had worked with environment, you know, people with extreme brain stuff for years and was like, well, wait a minute, this is, this is interesting. This is very you know, attention getting. And it wasn't just change, like ADHD folks were getting a couple of standard deviations on tests of attention of improvement in a few months, like one person after the next. So this kind of got my attention again. And I, I had to figure out how we were, what we were doing, because then more than 20 years ago, still now. Neurofeedback's a bit of an art. You know, it's very akin to personal training in that, yes, you have data and assessments and you can dig into actual real numbers of things, but you also have to understand the whole person, the system. And brains are weirder than bodies. So you get a lot more variability and a lot more unusual stuff is normal and typical, even though it's unusual. So when you move into the landscape of brain, at least 20, 25 years ago, Everyone doing it was kind of a guru in their space. So you were an autism specialist or an eating disorder specialist or a concussion specialist or a migraine, et cetera. And this stuff, this neurofeedback stuff had efficacy in all these landscapes of, of suffering in a way that I just did not think was possible after working for years in traditional environments. So I eventually went and got a PhD to study this stuff, to study neurofeedback. And I worked in the Zydel lab at UCLA, which is uh, Dr. Zydel, Ron Zydel was a great laterality neuroscientist. When he was a grad student, I think he worked for Sperry and Bogan doing some of the split brain research initially at Caltech and stuff way back in the day on the split brain uh, epilepsy research in the 70s and 80s and things. But I did laterality research at UCLA looking at left orient hemisphere organization and then brought in the neurofeedback stuff. And I think I may have done the first double blind placebo controlled study on neurofeedback for my dissertation work, or part of it anyways. And I did that work in 2010. So the field of neurofeedback has been around since at least the mid 60s. And I may have done the first double blind placebo controlled study demonstrating you know, the sort of blind impact or the actual brain's response to neurofeedback without the sort of human judgment piece of it being involved. And from that point, uh, just, I think you'll appreciate this. I ended up working for, oh, I ended up being about 12 years at UCLA, teaching a lot of what I taught was gerontology and peak brain aging. And I bet you would agree that the field of gero, the field of aging medicine is pretty tightly aligned with the field of peak performance biohacking. And a lot of the stuff we use and we used to use for only aging meds are used these days by people trying to get an edge or squeeze out performance or recover faster. Things like the, the choline drugs, you know, acetylcholine and things used to only be geriatric medicine. You know, now they're you know, used by students and executives and things. So um, that was my landscape. It's a long-winded story, my, my journey from working in health and human services through a PhD and then as I exited the PhD, I started a company that had a mixed addiction and non-addiction focus, you know, two separate sort of brandings. And then after a few years, the non-addiction side just outgrew the addiction-focused side pretty aggressively. So we split off into peak brain. 
in 2015 at this point. So we've been around for a while. We have offices in you know, New York and St. Louis and LA and Orange County, as well as some services popping up now in London and Stockholm. So people can work with our coaches and get their brains mapped and dig in and learn how they work and push them around. So neurofeedback is going international at this point, which is great because it's, it's like you mentioned, it it's, has really good utility both in health and wellness and also unfortunately patients with chronic illness. So let's answer some of the questions that I always get when I mention sure. this stuff to patients where they look at me like I have three heads unless they see the funny picture with me wearing the red cap, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes here. So to get all the information that you need to get somebody started on neurofeedback, you need to start measuring it, getting some information and data somehow, and that's usually done through a QEEG. So explain to people this is what a QEEG is. Is it similar to what people hear about in the hospital if you're getting a quote, uh, getting an EEG done for seizures? Where are the difference? Where are the similarities? And uh, we'll go from yeah. there. The, the field of EEG as a version of um, neuroimaging sort of a way of measuring the brain has been around for a long time. One of the first things we did for neuroimaging was look at the brain's electricity. And... The EEGs that we do today, for most purposes, are very similar to the EEGs that have been done for 100 years because they started off really looking at things like sleep stages. And so the particular grid of electrodes you put in the head and where they are and what, other, what else you measure became a standard. And, you know, the brain makes electricity. Electricity moves around and mixes and recombines. It's hard to measure signals at a location. So when doing EEG, you have to always kind of match your measurement scheme on the head to the measurement scheme of whatever it is you're, you're comparing it against. Some other research, or in this case, the, the Q and quantitative EEG means you're doing a full head cap of electrodes. In this case, we use 19 standard electrodes plus ear clips. And that's the same 19 plus ears you might wear for a sleep study or for epilepsy, uh, long-term monitoring. But in those cases, you're wearing these things for hours and hours and hours, you know, overnight or for a few days. In the case of a brain map or a QEEG, you may agree it's pretty straightforward. You sit down, put a cap on, squirt it full of gel. Kind of messy, but doesn't doesn't hurt. And then we have you sit still for about 10 minutes with your eyes closed and 10 minutes with your eyes open. And that is the assessment of your brain sort of resting fingerprint or resting resources. And we also do an executive function test, an attention test alongside it. That's a good practice from a you know, neuropsych perspective. I'm a cognitive neuroscience person, so I always must put physiology and performance in contrast to outline things. That's, that's, how, you know, that, that's my tool set. But the brain mapping or the QEEG takes that resting EEG, the eyes closed chunk and the eyes open chunk. And after clipping out coughs and wheezing and, and movement and stuff like that, you have several minutes of clean data you average those amounts, speeds, and connectivity patterns of different brain waves throughout the brain. You can take, take an average across time. And then I would compare your averages on both the brain mapping information, the, the, the EEG uh, recordings, and the performance test to an age match sample and see how weird you are, essentially. But good job, be weird. As, as far as the brain maps are concerned, we don't expect you to be average. And we don't use a brain map to train your brain towards average. We use a yardstick to hold up against you to see what sticks out and see what's interesting and unusual because people are unusual. And the degree to which things are unusual does not track how much suffering there is or if something's even in the way at all. But a lot of the stuff we call illness or psychiatric stuff or cognitive or emotional suffering, an awful lot of it isn't really a disease process. 
It's really a dysregulation of an existing resource that has different modes or ranges it can move through, and it kind of gets stuck, it gets dysregulated in one mode, kind of like a muscle can spasm or, or cramp up when it's very strong. Anxiety is the best example of this. You've got circuits all over the place that do specific things for information processing, evaluation, switching your focus around at the intersection of like stress and attention. Two big clusters uh, called the cingulates in the front and back switch your internal environment, what you're thinking about in the front, and the external focus and the orientation and the evaluation to the outside world in the back. So the front of the head is helping you remember that you walked into the store to get bread without rehearsing it. And the back midline of the head is helping you do things like watch the road, heads up, heads up. Oh, okay, Whew. Didn't, didn't crash, great. And that orientation thing is necessary and useful and you're always using it, but when your brain has a tendency to get stuck this way because it's powerful, or when you learn the world is not safe or predictable really acutely and strongly and quickly, the brain will cramp up these resources, these cingulates, and when the one in the front cramps up, you get features of perseveration or obsession. And when the one in the back cramps up, you get features of rumination or worry or threat sensitivity. So you're stuck in your head, stuck in your gut. But I don't know, looking at one person's brain, I can tell that like you're making a lot of beta waves and the cingulates and say, wow, your cingulates are pretty active. But I don't know if the one in the front is representing an OCD complaint for someone, or they're just a high-powered CEO who tends to get a bit rigid. I can tell it's unusual, I can tell it's strong, but it lets me sort of say, hey, here's a resource, and it's operating in a way that is unusual. Here's a plausible interpretation. What do you think? Is it, is it interesting? We help people walk through their you know, data and then understand what's happening and sort of recontextualize in some way stuff from a disease label into the actual resources that are involved. And then from there, again, the agency uh, unfolds and they can start making changes. So are you, I mean, as I mentioned, I had one. And first of all, I want to say for anybody, it's, a, it's an experience, it's a different, a different experience than I've ever had before, but it's very enlightening. And it's also something that things I was doing, they were asking me to do, it seems very simple. I'm like, how are they going to get any, any information from this that, that is scientific? And then when I got my results back, I'm like, okay, now I see how you guys are doing. So it's something you may not expect to get these complicated answers where it explains how your brain's working, but you actually do, which is really cool and amazing. And again, allows us to go into the treatment side of it. So when you're looking at the results from somebody, are you, I guess it sounds like you're looking at a combination between how each area of the brain is functioning, and then also are you looking at the interconnection between different parts of the brain as well? Yeah, exactly. Connectivity patterns, the amounts of brain waves, and the speeds of brain waves essentially across the average person. One second, doctor. Um, your camera is black. Yes, we're they're, they're, we're working on the tech. Just making sure you knew. I just yeah, just they are. You do you want me to keep going or what do you want to do? I'm, I'm totally. There we I'm, go. I am back. back. You're back. We found yeah, me. It's totally fine. Just in case you didn't know, I thought I. Would yeah, I know. I, I. They second. I was going to say something. They found it. Yeah. So we talked about the connection, uh, interconnection. So let's uh, for people listening, and they're going to have these questions. So let's say I am. Uh, I want to be the most elite top executive of a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. What are you? Are there characteristics a that you're looking for? You mentioned one already. Can I be trained to opt to be a better executive? Is it something that you can make, or is it just kind of inherent genetic, and you're kind of you are what you are? Or somewhere in between? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't think we come out as little, like, high-powered CEOs who, you know... In a little business suit? Right, you know, who want to, like, 
be the man and, and stamp on the person, you know, the, the little people. No. Yes, you can train resources, almost anything you can identify. You can measure, you can change. Understanding the brain's pretty hard, but changing the brain's not. So the, the, the mechanism, the technology of biofeedback is essentially measuring something that's varying in real time. And when it varies a little bit on its own in the right direction, you applaud it in a way the body or brain notices, and then you create learning and you steer that process. So yeah, anything you can measure, you can change. Now, there's not like a the best CEO, the best athlete kind of brain necessarily, but what I would say is that almost everyone has the capacity for profoundly amazing performance if there's certain bottlenecks that are lifted. And I tend to think of this as resources and bottlenecks, not as high and low performers, because you'll see high performers with bottlenecks and they're still performing fine, but it's difficult and effortful and they end up, you know, high level CEOs end up burnt out and angry at the end of the day, not, not flexible and able to go into listening mode with their, with their spouses or something. That's a problem, but it's a different kind of problem than, you know, somebody having seizures all the time. But generally, if you can work on the gross resources of sleep regulation, executive function, speed of processing, and say, stress, sleep, attention, and speed essentially are the big things. I mean, IQ on an IQ test is not a real thing as far as the brain is concerned. That's IQ decomposes into speed of processing, working memory, and implicit learning ability. Well, you can tweak your speed of processing and your working memory a little bit. So yeah, you can actually create higher performers. There's studies showing that IQ goes up by over a standard deviation when doing neurofeedback because you're creating resource changes. So it's more about well, what you need. You know, what is your brain like? Or what particular resources would you like to you know, move? So again, back to the cingulates, if I saw someone cingulates in the back and, and the, I could tell their brain was likely sampling and evaluating the environment powerfully, that might get in the way. So I'd say, hey, does this thing, you know, do you ruminate? Are you stuck in your gut? Kind of a hard time putting things down that bother you? Oh, that's true to you, huh? Ah, that's annoying. You wanna work on that? Okay, great. And that can be true of somebody who's experienced profound trauma and has classic PTSD. It can be somebody who's just a little irritable, has a hard time settling. But you can again flip the relationship into one of like, okay, here's your brain, here's your performance. What would you like to do? You know, here's some executive function stuff, here's some sleep stuff, here's some anxiety features, here's some speed of processing stuff. And when I say these, you know, sleep, stress, attention, and speed, these are actually resources that, that can be both measured and as they fluctuate, they make big changes across multiple things. Take speed, for instance. If I look at your alpha waves, this, your, your idling brain waves, you can see the, how fast they idle at. Most humans, most adult humans, about 10 times per second, 10 hertz. So if you're idling about 10 hertz, it's typical. But if your brain is not idling quite as fast as the average person your age, or if the circuits are all kind of not synchronizing across the same speed in alpha, and you're 30 or above, I would say something like, oh, hey, wait, your alpha speed, your speed of processing appears to be a bit slippery and dragging. Are you experiencing delayed recall and tip of the tongue and hunting for names and little short-term memory blips? And you know, most of the time, someone's like, wow, yes. And then if someone's 45 or 50 or 60, they're like, and I'm worried about that being age-related cognitive decline, by the way, as an aside, I think you'll appreciate this as an aging-focused doc. People are usually concerned 40s and 50s about dementia and, and big gero, you know, big big geriatric uh, declines. Often very freeing and useful to know the first type of memory you lose when you have the big things, the big dementias. The first thing you lose in memory is episodic memory, first-person perspective on scenes, things that happen to you. That's what you lose first. 
Speed of processing, words, names, tip of the tongue, forgetting things you were just told, that's actually not memory. It's just speed and you notice it when reaching for memory because it's a very time-intensive synchronization process. But actual memory circuits first, in age-related memory, you lose episodic or things that happen to you or the things that start slipping away. Uh-huh. So if you're not able to find words, you're probably not sleeping deeply enough or you've got some inflammatory stuff going on. You had COVID and your brain's walking around with lots of delta waves trying to rest and repair all the time and you feel half asleep like you've had a concussion. And then when you go to sleep, you don't go all the way down into deep sleep and make lots of robust delta because the brain's been making it all day long. So you see this like persistent metabolic rest, you know, uh, delta mode in anything metabolic, in COVID, in chemo, in apnea, in restless leg, in mild concussions, you see this persistent metabolic sluggishness. And you can't tell it apart. You can't tell an old concussion or two that's caused something apart from someone's post-COVID brain fog that was six months ago. It looks about the same at a high level. But if you see it, you don't have to know why it is. This is why you're a doctor of medicine and I'm a doctor of psychology. I'm a mad scientist for you and a, and a coach is because I'm not necessarily trying to find the discrete intervention and I sometimes can't find the root cause in the brain because we don't understand them that well. But we can spot phenomena you're experiencing and push them around. It doesn't really matter if the fog you have is because you have had you know, some old wear and tear here and there or because you've got dysregulated sleep architecture because you're anxious or because you had COVID last year and you haven't quite yet recovered your deep sleep. It doesn't really matter why. If you can spot the fog and fatigue in the brain, and spot, let's say, the stamina issues in a performance test, and you go, hey, you're uh, looking kind of foggy. You feel, a little, you feel a little burnt out? Oh, you are. Ugh, that's annoying. You want to work on that? Great. Now you're in a place of agency. And again, you can stop feeling, once you understand your brain and look at data, people have this experience of going, oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can now be annoyed at it or frustrated at it, but you just aren't really able to be ashamed or guilty when you see your brain and see your suffering, see your ADHD, see your anxiety, see your sleep issue, see your word finding issue. If it's jumping out in big giant pictures, it changes your relationship with it suddenly. And then if we teach you to read your pictures, Peak Brain has this, uh, we give you a year membership with Brain Maps are free. And your listeners will cut the membership in half. It's usually 500 bucks, but we'll cut it in half to 250. So folks can, if they're near one of the offices, unlimited access to come in, map your brain, learn about it, dig into it. And so we have people, uh, I I know some of our mutual friends in New York City are doing things like mapping multiple nootropics and looking at caffeine and methylene blue and all kinds of interesting brain effects in performance and in physiology because you can tease things apart. You don't have to use brain mapping for just neurofeedback guidance, but if you do see brain activity clusters that are some resting in a weird way and do seem to get in the way, that's why I like EEG mapping as a technology because it frames the intervention immediately. It's like, oh, you got a bunch of back midline beta and you're ruminating? Oh, okay, let's work on that. Let's see if we can make that you know, change. And it puts you immediately in a place of making intervention because then this is neurofeedback. You'd stick a wire back there on the scalp and a couple ear clips on and measure the person's beta moment to moment measure their alpha, which is the resting mode of that tissue, moment to moment. Whenever the beta happens to go down and the alpha happens to go up for half a second, you say, ooh, good job, brain, and make a little game on the screen start to move. And a few seconds later, when the brain moves in the wrong direction for that workout that day, the game slows down or stops. And then the big trick is we move the goalposts every few seconds. So this is operant conditioning, but of an involuntary behavior because you can't really feel your brain waves. 
So you're watching a little game on the screen, stop and start, or puzzle pieces fill in, or a Pac-Man dots, or music play in silence. And you're like, really? This is doing something to me? But your brain here is, good job, brain, good job, brain, good job, brain, nope. Ooh, good job, good job, good job. Nope, good job, again and again. And this is no different than a little baby flopping around who does a little baby push-up suddenly and goes, whoa, I can see 12 feet instead of three feet. This is so cool, all this information. The brain remembers all the unique conformation of muscles so it can remember the associative, you know, learning, the states that produce the information flow. And then since we're gently applauding not just an event in the brain, but like the trend you may have over half an hour, little runs of the brain waves, the brain goes, hey, wait a minute. Oh, alpha back there is making stuff happen. Huh, okay, cool. And usually two or three sessions in, the brain goes, all right, I, I like the information. I want that over no information, sure. And it reaches for, in this case, more alpha. And the person goes, ah, whoa, I feel a little different. Huh, am I, am I imagining this? No, I don't think so. Huh, it's a little weird. And then it lingers for a few hours and wears off. And you say, coaches, I might have noticed. Ah, I don't think I noticed anything. I'm like, all right, try it again. And you try it again and you're like, oh, wait a minute. And then your sleep, your stress, your mood will flex after every session, like you go to the gym and you kind of feel it the next day, well, you work your brain out and you get a little flex in sleep onset or depth, in energy and clarity and stress. And so you get to get a little transient effect, grade it, evaluate it, talk to your coaches, refine your plan, and then gradually iterate. And we map your brain again about every other month, 25 sessions or so. And that's enough neurofeedback to produce usually a full standard deviation of change, especially if there's any need in executive function on you know, classic CPT tests or on the same brain activity for ADHD or anxiety features, you can move them to that degree pretty reliably across people. So when you move that much on a bell curve, it feels like an awful lot. And if you do a few months of neurofeedback, especially on the things of you know, sleep, stress, and attention, the stuff you're using all the time, the brain is now practicing that stuff in a new mode all the time. So it doesn't really wear off after a few months, which is now your new brain resources, and you get to sort of have that new stability and push them harder if you like after that. So I have patients who have ADD and long COVID, and how do we, how do you frame it for patients when they're dealing with you or one of your colleagues? Okay, I have again ADD. I'm dealing with long COVID. I have yeah. some memory, some brain fog. When am I going to feel some improvement when I start doing neurofeedback? And what? Uh, and the other question is, so do they? Do you tell them what they should notice first? Like, how do they know it's working? What's the magic in the in the potion here? How do you? How do we frame it? Because this is not okay. Here, just take your antibiotic, and you're going to feel better in five days. They're putting work in, and it's again, like you said, it's not a tangible. It's not like your blood pressure goes down or your blood sugar gets down. So, how do we frame this for people listening out there? Yep. To understand, blood pressure does go down actually, and you do get blood sugar stabilization. So there, some hey, there feedback. You go. But okay. generally, um, you tell someone, well, the way that we work at Peak is you map your brain at the beginning, and then a couple of days later, I go over data with you, and I walk through a brain map and an attention test and teach you to pick out the stuff that seems to be interesting and say, this thing here, we think about it this way, these brain waves, this feature, this part of the brain, here's physiology. Does this seem valid? Does this seem important to you, real to you? And we trip over the big things people care about that way. And so usually by the time they're starting neurofeedback, they have this sense of agency, like, wait a minute, I'm working on my executive function. I'm working on my this. And so I would build a plan of little 15-minute chunks of workout and do a couple a day or a couple three times a week more accurately. We would say to them something to the effect of people usually feel it three to five sessions in, and then you get a little transient effect. 
for a couple of hours, up to 24 hours after every session. And based on what happens, we want to know how you're feeling, sleep, stress, and attention stuff shifting around, other goals you have. And so we send clients surveys twice a day. Every morning we send you a sleep survey saying, how was your sleep? And every afternoon, how was your day? So clients start making notes of their goals. And we sort of Marco Polo our way towards success. You know, they define what success is. It's not a, here's what's wrong with you, client. It's a, hey, here's what's weird and interesting and unusual. Which of these things might be, oh, that's what that one's important to you? Okay. And success looks like, okay, gotcha. And now we're, you know, keeping our eye on that, trying to elicit subjective effects. So after a few sessions, usually by the end of the second week, five, six sessions in, you're getting a little lingering effect whenever you do neurofeedback. And then when you do different neurofeedback, the effect you get feels different. So you can go, whoa, I was kind of wired after that one. Oh, okay, let's tweak a little, change the frequency, change the site. Oh, I was super chill after that one. That was weird. I like that. All right, cool. You know, so you can kind of learn someone's brain gently as you try workouts the way a personal trainer does. Yeah, and within a few weeks, tangible. we're usually making some, yeah, tangible subjective benefits are emerging. And then you go to the objective, the, the resting brain is changed uh, about six, seven, eight weeks in, you can see those changes. So. so we keep using the term neurofeedback. So if we're doing it neurofeedback, what's involved? Is it another headset? Is it just a game? Is it some combination of both? Yeah. So all neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback. And biofeedback is just a reflection, a control uh, system. You, you, know, you observe things inside so you can reflect back what's happening. Unlike most forms of traditional biofeedback, which involve things like hand warming and breath pacing and stuff like that, neurofeedback is largely involuntary because you can't feel the central nervous system. That's the definition of neurofeedback. It's biofeedback on things that are in the central nervous system. And for folks who are not quite so neurosavvy, the central nervous system is all the stuff inside of bones. If a nerve's inside of bone, it's central nervous system, pretty much. So you can't feel those. You can feel the nerves in your peripheral nervous system. You can learn to control like the, the tension, let's say, in your body using peripheral biofeedback. And they do things for pelvic floor stability and incontinence and things that are biofeedback on the gut. But for neurofeedback, you're measuring something you can't feel. You're measuring behavior you're not aware of. You know, you're getting chained. There's billions of things happening in certain specific ways in your brain all the time. Can't feel it. You're kind of glad you can't feel your brain, by the way. We don't have any sensory nerve endings in our brain. We can't feel the tissue itself, ironically. The thing that does all the feeling can't feel itself. But you're kind of happy about that because it moves. Not quite as much as the heart does, but it moves. And it's full of like amazing amounts of electricity and acidic compounds and all kinds of stuff. So if we could feel it, it would probably hurt all the time because it's just so much going on. So in the case of neurofeedback, it was billions of things and you simply measure a parameter that's fluctuating moment to moment, like the speed of your alpha. And if I play a sound or make a car go faster or make a Pac-Man eat a dot or anything in the outside world, when your alpha speeds up a little bit, your brain goes, hey, wait, that information seems to be contingent on me. That's kind of interesting. The mind doesn't usually. The mind can't feel its own brainwaves. So you're like, why does that sound keep happening? Okay. But the brain's like, hey, wait, more alpha's making stuff? I like stuff. Hey, where's my stuff? Oh, there's my stuff. I like stuff. Oh, I can have more stuff when I make alpha? I'm going to make some alpha. And then the mind goes, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I feel that. So you get this involuntary exercise process going on, essentially. So 
train for half an hour, three times a week, and starting three, four sessions in, you feel different slightly afterwards. You get this little subtle lingering effect. So the voluntary piece of it, the work, is goal setting and is reflecting on did the workout land? Did the neurofeedback produce the thing you're looking for in any way? And if it did, you can sort of chase those effects and burgeon them and tune them to get better effects. And that's the, that's the art of neurofeedback to some extent, is that understanding the brain well enough, understanding the person well enough, and communicating around their goals uh, and around what they're observing to help design the next few days of workouts that they're going to want to push themselves around with. It's amazing. The brain is very simple and very complicated all at the same time. And you got to know how to play with it and manipulate it to get it to go where you want to get to. So you keep it you, with goals. It, could somebody come to you and say pretty much most goals are regarding their cognitive performance and that's something that you guys come up with a plan with at least to opt to possibly help, help them get there? So yeah, there's saying? cognitive goals. There are emotional goals, a lot of anxiety stuff. A lot of trauma stuff. A really reliable work in neurofeedback for creativity. I have a disproportionately really? okay. large number of actors in my client roster who often come in because they're getting hounded in the red carpet, they're super stressed, or they're like not sleeping well enough to remember their lines well enough or something. But the creativity boost that our actors, our musicians, even our athletes get is not uh, insignificant. It's a fairly dramatic and profound release of creativity. So the creativity work, which happens to bring up T-cells, the same end of the protocol pool, people come in for T-cell boosts or for creativity boosts or for migraines or for seizures or for concussions. They also come in, certainly for peak brain, because we're not necessarily illness focused, they come in to understand their brain and just be like, I probably, I would say something every year, I get one or two clients that comes in who says, yeah, yeah, I don't know, just, uh, Let's look at my brain and optimize me. Usually it's suffering that drives someone's, you know, or a specific goal, athletic goal, a performance goal, something, or some suffering. You know, goals to me are irrelevant to some extent if they're suffering-driven or performance-driven goals. They're just goals, and I want to frame our work in spotting, supporting, changing things toward your goals. But it ends up being a broad network where a third of our clients are neuro, you know, the classic sort of neurofeedback population of, autism and ADHD and seizures and migraines, concussions, and these days, post-COVID brain fog and other you know, sort of neuro complications. And then we have the other third of the pool, which are ultra high performers at peak. A lot of extremely high athletes, a lot of uh, musicians for some reason, like very, very, you know, people squeezing the juice out of life uh, kind of, uh, you know, performers. And then the last third is all the rest of us who are a little burnt out, who may have some issues with stress or drinking or a little hint of ADHD or whatever. And a lot of those people we started to get for the first several years we were in business, we didn't first start pitching ourselves as you know, broad brain optimization. We were more focused on the populations of interest in neurofeedback when we first opened up. But we kept getting like several kids with ADHD, let's say, and then their parents would see the change and sign on and get really nice transformation, even without necessarily identified large goals or needs. And then you get people coming in. I get a lot of these every year who say, oh, I have no problems at all, essentially. You know, I sleep great, no anxiety, I'm powerful. I run a, mil- I run a billion dollar company. Yeah, yeah, life's good, but like, let's, let's get me more. And they have a person for everything. And, and now they're looking for a brain person to like just be a resource. And you look at their brain and you're like, wow, this person looks really, really anxious and hyper-focused. Oh my God, they're not sleeping. And you dig deeper and you find that they're using Coke, Coke every so often. And they're really kind of like a jerk to their wives when they get home. And you're like, okay. 
And I don't care that they don't identify that as a problem, but when they show, yeah, I'm not as soft as I might want to be to my wife. I can't be a good listener. I'm still trying to solve problems when I get home. I'm like, all right. We do a little bit of work on their sleep and whatever else. And then we slide in some alpha theta neurofeedback for creativity. And I get a letter or a call from their wives saying, whatever you did, do more of it. That was the best conversation we ever had. The therapy session was, <gasps> he brought me flowers because you can unlock stuff. So it ends up being tailoring the stuff you're doing, the workout possibilities towards the stuff the person's trying to accomplish and listening carefully and framing their goals in terms of their physiology whenever possible. So you can then try to elicit a change in their physiology they notice subjectively in their goals. So we're really you know, applied cognitive neuroscientists. I call it functional neuroscience because we're looking for you know, this piece of it. And I also do the functional you know, habit hacking and biohacking piece of it where peak brain coaches teach all of our clients how to you know, manage circadian rhythm through the classic circadian tricks or to do macronutrient cycling to reset insulin resistance or a thousand other things that might be in someone's goal landscape. And you know, how you might teach someone to do keto would be very different if they were a competitive lifter versus an eight-year-old with seizures. You know, so you'd have different criteria. You might give them different management tools, you know, breath ketone versus a blood ketone meter, let's say. So we do a little bit more broad, holistic biohacking for our clients. But, you know, Maslow said to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. And gosh, my first knee jerk is usually, let's look at a brain map. And because of that, we make them very accessible and we teach you to read them and you know, get you excited about them. So I am learning a, a much more big, how big a scope this is. So you can make me form better at work and improve my love life. And I can, if I have writer's block, you can fix that too, is what you're saying. Or with I the can design protocols that are likely to create change for you in those, in those resources that you'll notice and that you will then be able to say, oh, I think I got something out of that protocol. And together we can learn how to elicit effects in those directions usually, yes. Yeah. So, so brain map pretty much can help you with a lot, of, the whole spectrum here, which is awesome. Which uh, I love learning things when I, when I talk to experts. So um, I'd happen to deal with, unfortunately, a lot of patients either with some type of traumatic brain injury. So I wanted to quickly highlight that. I mean, both either concussion or on or into, like you mentioned, in terms of you started the core initially with things like Alzheimer's and ADD. So how does the, is that process any more complicated, any slower? I guess, unfortunately, long COVID may kind of overlap into that now. So is that the same process? That Again, how does that work? Same process at a high level. Um, it is a little slower. Yeah. If you have a lot of TBIs or wear and tear, if you're an athlete who's collected a bunch of concussions and you're a beat off in your speed of processing and you're chronically anxious... Yeah, it takes longer. Like if you just, quote unquote, come in with major ADHD or PTSD and it's it's pure and simple and classic, three or four months, maybe five, you know, makes massive changes for almost everyone. But if you come in with lots of wear and tear, like my NFL players or NBA players have caught too many elbows and things, it takes four to six months usually just to get you sort of where you want to be and stable. Or folks that have autism that, you know, with language issues and sensory stuff, it's a bit longer than simple brain tuning like ADHD or sleep issues might be. Um, this amount of severity doesn't affect how well we can work with things. And some, to some extent, the worse things are, the faster they move in, in brain training because you can see them and you can really be specific. And the brain hears your attempts to change when you're that specific. Um, but when you're using uh, uh, tools in neurofeedback for 
the metabolic stuff, the wear and tear, the brain fog, the post-COVID, the Lyme, the chemo, the apnea, um, the sort of metabolic hit the person's taken, which looks very similar again across causes, we often include not just the brain mapping and the EEG training, which is classic neurofeedback, but we, we do something called HEG training, uh, passive infrared hemoencephalography. So it's an infrared camera strapped to the forehead pointing inward, and it measures waves of heat flowing off the brain as a proxy for metabolism. And you learn to do a, a vascular pump by thinking happy thoughts and concentration and getting a two-second later bold response essentially in the brain, like the MRI would, would show. You get a little blood, a blood surge, a second and a half, two seconds after you concentrate. So you learn to create vascular pumping in your brain and see waves of heat on, on a screen responding to voluntary thought and effort. So you're kind of doing this weird peripheral nervous system type biofeedback, blood flow stuff, but doing it on the central nervous system, at least the support systems, the vasculature. So I'm not exactly sure what form of neurofeedback or biofeedback that is, but PIRHEG is um, amazing for migraines, concussions. Um, and for some reason, that technology, that frontal lobe vascular pumping seems to work really well for accelerating social function when people have developmental disabilities, especially in things on the autistic spectrum. So it's a blood flow tool, essentially. But yes, wow. uh, we would do EEG and HEG training and expect it would be four to six months for you know, a lot of wear and tear and TBIs. Um, but again, the worse things are, the faster you get changed. So Dr. Barry Sturman, who sort of discovered the current form, the modern form of neurofeedback in the late 60s, he discovered it because um, it reduces seizures. Like he just kind of discovered by, by mistake a little bit, like sort of. He, he was doing EEG uh, operant conditioning on uh, his, his population, his animal population of interest, where he put a chicken broth, uh, sorry, a, a, a eyedropper inside of the cheek of cats and would squirt chicken broth into their mouth whenever they made a brainwave the cats make a lot of as, an, as a reward. And that brainwave you've seen, if you've seen cats on a windowsill being liquid, watching birds, that physically relaxed state and, and laser-like focus is called sensory motor rhythm in mammals. And we use it to sit still, we use it to stay asleep, we use it to inhibit seizures. So high SMR tone is literally the opposite of ADHD, first of all, but it has a very impact on stabilization of seizures. So Sturman did this experiment with eight cats raising their SMR and proved he could condition it up and put them back in the subject pool. And six months later, pulled them out, pulled 32 cats out, and were exposing them to rocket fuel at the behest of NASA to see how dangerous rocket fuel was. It's the 60s, animal research. And- uh, yeah, Air quote, or- air, Yeah, air quotes. Animal yeah, research was- all, every, yeah, everything there, yeah. Well, I mean, animal research, you know, it, it, we always try, even today, even back then, we, were, we always try to do the least destructive thing possible. And nowadays, we can do more least destructive research that doesn't, doesn't harm creatures. Um, in the 60s, computers, there was less in silica, less, less known about basic science, a lot more even ethical uh, animal research was happening that, that you know, took, took animal lives. Um, this was one of those studies, and Sturman was, ex for, for the purpose of NASA keeping astronauts safe, was figuring out if uh, methylhydrazine was quite toxic because people were reporting symptoms, nausea, hallucinating, vomiting, when they were near it. 
So Sturm was testing cats, a safety study for NASA, and he found that of these 32 cats, 24 of them had a perfect dose-dependent curve when exposed to methyl hydrazine vapor, where it was ataxia or stumbling, drooling, crying, seizure, coma, death, a perfect dose-dependent curve. But eight of the cats, you know, most of the cats are having seizures 40 minutes in. Eight of the cats, two and a half hours in, were just starting to show some instability events in the brain when the other cats were at the end of their dose curve response, so to speak. And Sturman couldn't really figure out why a quarter of the cats appeared to be super cats that were methylhydrazine resistant until he remembered that these cats may have been part of other, sub other studies. And he looked and these cats had had their SMR brainwaves trained up. Well, his lab assistant was a uh, medication uncontrolled epileptic on Meberol, Tegretol, Dilantin, huge amounts of it, having tens of seizures every week. Complex partial, mixed, tonic-clonic, just miserable. They built her an audio feedback machine to measure her SMR and play tones when she made more. And over the next year, she went off all of, all of her meds and remained seizure-free for a year. Wow. That was the start of the field of neurofeedback in 1967. And from there, it's it, it moved into sleep, it moved into ADHD, it moved into seizure because of SMR, because it's, it's central to executive function regulation. We also call SMR sleep spindles or sigma at night, the thing that fires to keep you asleep when a car goes by. You kind of notice it, but don't wake up. That's suppression of the rousing instinct when that's appropriate. So SMR helps with inhibitory tone helps prevent things from reacting when you don't want them to in the brain. Be that motoric impulsivity or a seizure or waking up throughout the night. So again, a calm cat in a windowsill, literally the opposite of ADHD, physiologically. But I'm gonna have an image of that the rest of the day. The little, my, the little cat just hanging out, like a little cartoon. Uh, so you mentioned something I wanna get back to really quickly. You mentioned about this, uh, uh, addressing social behavior. Does that mean if somebody, if you can help if they're, they're, I guess, possibly help somebody if they're introverted or shy, is that something where there, it may be a brain functioning issue that you may be able to help them? Or is it, I mean, again, it also could be related to potentially some other issues. That's something that could be addressed um, if people or if somebody doesn't yeah. react well in social situations or. The latter is more addressable than shyness. Shyness may be normal and natural and good for you and ha works for you okay. great. But social anxiety? Social integration, social cueing, discomfort around people's voices and eye contact. You know, I see that in people on the autistic spectrum, a big cluster of tissue behind the right ear called the temporoparietal junction. I also call it the princess and the pea because it gets irritated at everything. And you'll see it really hot in autism and they aren't it's just like a fire hose and you can't filter it. You'll also see it really hot in people that have deep emotional, you know, the, the wounded poet who's like feeling all the feels and has all the thoughts and has all the resources with which to catastrophize and emote. You see that tissue is wide open in people. And so, you know, you can tell it's kind of hot. You can tell there's some sort of like, the same people, you know, they're gonna throttle their roommates when they're chewing too loud. And, you know, they notice every person suffering on the street corner. And yeah, if that gets in the way and you want noise canceling headphones for social information or sensory irritability, you put a wire there, you measure usually the hot beta, and you let some alpha come up to replace it. And it's like getting a voluntary gain knob to turn things down. And when I say voluntary, I mean voluntary. We don't take things away with neurofeedback usually. We give you range. So the CEO that has that front midline hotspot might have some OCD. And after you train down the excess beta in the front midline, they can still turn it up when they need to hyperfocus and then put it down at 5.30 p.m. and not hyper-focus as another viable mode to be in. 
So that's the gift of neurofeedback, honestly, is flipping you out of this perspective of suffering and overwhelm and stuff not working for you and into like a, okay, got some brain resources. Yeah, what so do you want to do? They're not at 10 all the time. They can go between a one and a 10 when, when they need it. And you know, if you're always on, it's more like you're always on an eight and a half and it doesn't ever feel good. But if you learn to turn it off to a one or a two, you can go flexibly between, you know, one and 11, no problem. It feels good. But if you're always at an eight, it feels horrible and you can never quite actually push as hard or as soft as you might need to. And that's true of perseveration, rumination, social and sensory cueing. Um, you can see executive function things pretty clearly. So ADHD, for instance, is not just a low amount of SMR. It's usually a high amount of theta, which is lubrication. And you can tell based on which side of the brain it is, if it's left side, then you have issues with things like the spotlight being bright enough and clear enough and stable enough. We call that attention or focus. And then the right side of the brain usually is the supervisor to know if you're paying attention or if you're going to go squirrel. And it helps uh, shut off the theta and bring up the beta, the SMR beta, as a way of directing the machine so you don't end up with inattentiveness in the left or impulsivity or disinhibition from the right, uh, failure of that sort of motor tissue to create SMR tone, which lets you sit still, be still internally, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to have you help me answer a question I get all the time from my patients. So why QEG? Because they hear about all these things on social media, Reddit, whatever it happens to be now. There's so much, again, too much information. We have to filter it yeah. down here. But it's QEG, there's functional MRI, there's spec. Does QEG play well? Are there differentiations that you can make simply to say, look, this is why QEG, sure. QEG is better than spec or functional MRI? Yeah. I have, I mean, Where does everything play right? in the playground here? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very biased, but... <laughs> We, we should know that. However, um, EEG is so much cheaper than an MRI machine. So you can get an EEG for a few hundred bucks. You know, it takes a grand an hour to run an MRI machine because of the helium and whatever else. So SPECT, very expensive. MRI, fMRI, very expensive. Also, one of the big issues with using imaging like SPECT or fMRI to understand you is there's no reference point. So when Dr. Amen looks at a spec scan, he can make a judgment call and say, oh, this part of the brain, this little divot of activity, that's this part, and you're experiencing this. But the only people that can do that are people who work for the Amen Center, who use spec, who've been trained in that way. No one else can do it. Brain mapping, QEG, takes the resting brain activity and then age matches the comparisons. So you get a graded heat map of what's unusual out of the database instantly. So that's one way in which you know, the 10,000 people in the U.S. who do neurofeedback, they all can kind of read the same brain map the same way and come up with a similar perspective on the tools. So that's useful. More importantly, you then have an EEG solution sort of suggested. You know, if you do go into a SPECT, most folks that do SPECT are functional medicine doctors. So your SPECT is, the, the place that SPECT I find is unbelievably useful is the really, really squirrely, mysterious diagnosis you need. You don't know what's happening. If no one can figure it out, the spec is unbelievable at that. But the interventions are medical interventions or functional medical interventions, lifestyle, drugs, supplements, you know, great. But it's the diagnosis you're getting the value from when it comes to something like a spec scan or even an fMRI. And you need the person who knows how to read those, the neurologist who knows how to read blood flow in the anterior cingulate or something and knows what it means because there's no database of blood flow across 10,000 people that you can look at a bell curve and go, wow, that's an unusual amount of blood flow for you. It doesn't exist. 
So you have to only have the rarefied neurologist making those calls about what is true for you. Where QEG, there's five or six or eight commercial products, thousands of cases, all the shape of data in them approaches that of the real population in the world. So you at least have a yardstick and you have some sense of what it means. And then again, okay, it's an EEG phenomenon you're seeing. You can now push on that particular EEG phenomena and see if you notice anything. You're, you're given agency instantly to start taking control of it. And since it's a pretty non-invasive, transient, gentle way to push yourself around, it's very low risk. A couple sessions in, you can try it. Oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling something, great. If you don't like what you're feeling, don't repeat that neurofeedback protocol and it wears off the next day or so. You have to repeat something five, 10, 15, 20 times to really get movement in the brain. Um, so you have this freedom to like see the stuff in a brain map or QEG and go, I would like to manipulate that and then use neurofeedback EEG training to go right after the stuff you're seeing and use the same tool sets to watch things change uh, over many, many uh, months. So there we go. I like that. It's an N of one versus N of many and a little more, tan again, more more understanding is of QEG versus SPECT and the other studies that are out and, there. And I, I can teach you the features. If I showed you your alpha speed wasn't as fast as the average person your age and I said, hey, you experiencing some delayed recall and tip of the tongue and you're like, eh, yeah. And then we trained your brain and three months later looked at it and it was up to speed and you felt smooth and had good verbal fluency then yes, I kind of know what it means, but guess what? You know what it means better than I do. Because I've taught you to look at the alpha speed, I've had you watch your internal word finding, you've transformed it, you felt it change. To me, that is as valuable as the change, is this perspective you get starting to take control of some of these resources and iterating through like progressive agency instead of being overwhelmed by what is happening. So that's my soapbox. Yeah. Very well said on your soapbox. I, that, thank you. Thank you. Now you can jump off. And as, as we move into the future here, I know you're bringing your feedback not only to across the, across the world now, now going to London and Stockholm, yeah, yeah. but you're now letting people, like you said, people do it at home. That's the start of the future of neurofeedback in your institute. What, what do you foresee now in the next two, three, five years coming down the pike? I mean, you've already told me it can fix my love life and also uh, make me be like the next uh, Steve Jobs here. But what is yeah, the future hold for? I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, I haven't figured out how to turn on hair growth. I know both sorry. of us. Yeah, I, I, for me, be, that would that would be like the home run there. There you go. You know, right? Like uh, I have a long line of executives out the door that they come that come back for secondary training. If I could, get there you go. You, hair, you know? That you fix testosterone and uh, you be you you have need thirty thousand centers. But I have that, some good tricks for. Middle-aged dude libido. They're not. They're not neurofeedback tricks. But I got some good tricks that are non-invasive. So there you go. I often, I often share them. <laughs> All folks, you know, and full of full of tricks. Where 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 are we heading with the neurofeedback, and where do you see your institute yeah. going? So Peak Brain is about eighty percent virtual now. Um, most of our clients don't see offices. The ones that do just come in for brain maps usually. Um, you know, we have physical uh, staff in London, Stockholm, uh, Wellington. Uh, we're probably partnering with somebody in, in Australia and Sydney shortly. And then we have the four offices in the U.S. So if you're in one of the countries where we have a physical location, we can rent you equipment, send stuff out very quickly. And if you're not in one of those countries, we actually work with clients in 30 or 40 countries already because clients will just buy a set of hardware and software for themselves or their family. 
And we have seven-day-a-week live support coaching the way we're set up. We do the first two weeks of neurofeedback live with you. We teach you the basics of traditional neurofeedback. So where we've really taken an advance is we've taken the process of doing traditional, tailored, careful, individual wire placement neurofeedback and made that scalable to a virtual environment. But there's still a bottleneck in the process of neurofeedback, which is knowing how the thing you've tried feels and the round trip of here's the brain map, here's the thing you've tried, here's what, how it felt, here's what you're planning on trying, how do you adjust it? That's the personal training circuit. Um, we have a, to cobble together a backend platform to kind of create this perspective on clients, you know, their stage, their transformation, where they are, what their goals are, you know, the unknowns in their, uh, their changes thus far, et cetera. And what I would expect uh, where we're going, not just in neurofeedback, but in, I would guess, in health and wellness, I would guess in finance, I would guess in all kinds of domains in life, I think in the next three to five years, we're going to see intelligent agents, you know, AI, um, transforming everything. And I expect, <laughs> AI is everywhere. It's everywhere. And I, you know, a lot of what I do, the reason that my colleagues that exist in the field know, you know, no one's doing this high scale neurofeedback. It's really hard to do. And since the field existed, people have tried and failed again and again and again. And I might have the largest, you know, uh, uh, footprint of, of, of clients uh, for neurofeedback. And I have around 200 active clients at a time or something, which is an awful lot for a single neurofeedback you know, provider, essentially. But I'm doing that because I've got all kinds of domain expertise shoved into my head. You know, a cognitive neuroscience PhD and 20 years of working with brains at the extreme and teaching people about brains for 20 years. It's an awful lot. And it's a hard thing to replicate for neurofeedback. But if I can use you know, the past 10 years of Peak Brain's skill decision-making around clients with the complaints, with the outcomes, to start training intelligent avatars to say, hey, client with this brain map, this complaint, these goals, you know, what, will we, what, what have we done in the Peak Brain way historically? Over time, I can start separating the sort of giftedness of clinicians in the field from the need to do that that level because you know peak brain has pretty competitive pricing in neurofeedback especially in new york city where you are our prices are disruptively competitive they're all my very, colleagues love how vocal i am yeah they love how vocal we are but they kind of hate our prices um <laughs> essentially uh you know for folks that are wondering with that little tease it's about 5k for a three-month program which you can get 50 sessions in so we're under that hundred dollar you know uh uh, threshold basically for, for pricing. And in New York City, you know, it's therapists are charging three, 400 bucks a session, same in LA. So it's getting a little bit ridiculous because it's a brain drain. You know, when I was in the field initially being trained by like a second generation person since it started, I think there may have been more people in the field 10 years ago than now. The technology is getting easier. The amount of it's out there, the costs of the barriers to entry are lowering, but the number of skilled people who can do it might be fewer because of this sort of like the first, you know, Dr. Sturman is still like emeritus faculty at UCLA, still does some neurofeedback, but other people in second and third generations have been dying and aging out of the field. The guy that trained me, Dr. Larry Hirschberg on the East Coast, amazing autism uh, psychologist, uh, he retired last year, you know? Um, and that's happening again and again. So the skill of like the high level person or trainer who's also kind of neuro savvy, who's also kind of like able to coach you, that's been a hard thing to replicate. And 
Peak Brain does it, has done it by replicating the coaching piece with our um, sort of direct coaches we have work with you and the sort of personal trainer, you know, head coach uh, working with you that way, that kind of high-end gym model. But where I want to bring it is where the, the phone app in your, in your pocket tells me what your aura ring says and your coach goes on, notices that new protocol you tried wasn't great for your sleep maintenance, makes a small tweak, and you get a pop-up saying, hey, thanks for the report. Uh, tomorrow's protocol is different. Here's why. Essentially, I want to do that thing round trip without the, in some ways, really time intensive and labor intensive. And, you know, a lot of it's just pushing numbers around so people can, can, can have everything right there where they can make domain expertise, be that the, the wellness coach or the individual or the therapist. I want that like fitness tracker for the brain, but with not just all the information aggregating like a fitness tracker, but with intelligent predictive stuff. Hey, Joe, you, um, you're drinking every Thursday night and you're kind of a jerk every Friday. You notice that? As a feature of what the avatar says. Or, hey, you're experiencing this and these trends are happening. Here's three health and wellness interventions you've done before that helped. Your, your circadian rhythm's off. Uh, you may want to start fasting before bed again because last year when you were sleeping this poorly and you did that, you got back on track quickly. You know, that kind of stuff is, I think, where we're going because, I mean, when you and I were growing up, I'm not sure how old you are, but there weren't a lot of gyms on every corner no. in the 70s. That really happened in the 80s. And our parents didn't have gyms on every corner. But you and I can look at a lipid panel and go, whoa, better back off in the Ben and Jerry's and, and take agency. You know, and I think the brain piece of it is the next piece of it, but it's not as knowable. Um, it's, it's, it's more mysterious still, and it's also more variable across people. So the information is less discreet. It's like genetic information. It's not as discreet. It's, it's additive and, and it builds up in systems. So that's where I think we're going is having something, you know, the next health and wellness iteration is going to be something that can model interventions against it and say, ah, given this brain, given this complaint structure, given this recent experience, that intervention is not going to work, but that one plausible might work. So at that point, the cost structure of neurofeedback, the cost structure of brain interventions, of self-assessments, of health and wellness starts to do this from the point of view of the consumer and the access and agency play goes way, way up, um, even more than I think uh, it started to with, with technology becoming accessible. That, that would be perfect. That'd be very, again, something one of these apps that's usable and gives you on at instantaneous information would be incredibly helpful. So where can people find out about the Peak Brain Institute and learn more how you guys can help them? So we're at peakbraininstitute.com uh, as, as far as the website. Most of our socials are at Peak Brain LA because that was our first office. So you can find Peak Brain LA on Twitter and Instagram, et cetera. Um, but I would say look us up and come on in uh, and we will give you guys who listen, who mentioned this show a discount. So the $500 a year membership drops to 250. That gets you unlimited brain maps in all the offices, or you can use the same discount towards a remote program if you aren't near an office. And we have uh, uh, longer, you know, multi-month programs for folks that aren't near the offices too. So greatly appreciate that. We'll put that in the notes and also on all the, when we post this on all the social media sites. And again, thanks, Dr. Hill, for hopping on. He's always a bastion of knowledge and uh, as a way. Of, I think you've done this before. You have these all these analogies and ex ways of explaining what you do now. So I think you've done you've done this a couple times already. Does so. it come across this pattern? Have you, can you tell? Yeah, yeah. No, still, I mean, I mean, still, still feel spontaneous. Good. But, 
I appreciate Give, that. Very Although well folks have heard me go over their brains, will recognize a metaphor or two that I've used today, probably. So um, it's all it's all yeah. it's all good. So thanks for coming on on Life Optimized, and we'll see you guys soon. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. dot